This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome back to Books and Nachos. I'm Arnie, your host for this episode. And I'm sorry it's been a while since the last Books and Nachos episode, but I promise I have a really good reason for that. This week, I'm reviewing Stephen King's Under the Dome. And this book comes in just shy of 1,100 pages, and I don't mind admitting that that's about four times the length of the average novel I read. Now, this review is going to be spoiler-free, so I'm not going to be talking about the plot at all. I'm going to be talking... Just about the book, the structure, and comparing it to some of Stephen King's older works, and there may be spoilers for some of Stephen King's other works. However, at the very end of the podcast, there will be a spoiler, and you will be given plenty of warning before that happens. First, full disclosure, I'm a Stephen King fan from way back when. I remember being in middle school, and when I was in late elementary school, sixth grade, I remember seeing all of my friends start reading Lord of the Rings, and it was funny. It was like there was only one copy of Lord of the Rings, and it just went from person to person because it was spreading like a virus throughout the class. But then it changed in seventh grade, and suddenly it became Stephen King. And I was introduced to Stephen King by Stuart, who is my co-host on the podcast Now Playing at NowPlayingPodcast.com, where you can hear us review movies like Avatar and horror movies, such as Friday the 13th and coming in 2010, Nightmare on Elm Street. I got into Stephen King around the time of It, but the book that was popping up throughout my class was Skeleton Crew, which had some of Stephen King's best short stories in it. At that point, I went back and read a lot of Stephen King's back catalog and kept up with the new stuff, which was then Eyes of the Dragon and the Tommyknockers and the re-release of The Stand. And then in the very early 90s, I joined the Stephen King Book of the Month Club, which I am actually still a member of. I've received every Stephen King book they have, which is basically everything except for the Dark Tower series and much of the Richard Bachman stuff. And now every time Stephen King comes out with a new book, they send it to me. But I have to admit that I'm a bit of a collector when it comes to things and not always a reader. And so with the Stephen King books I get, I'm kind of hit or miss on whether or not I read them. And it basically depends a lot on the book and the hype surrounding it. I haven't read much of his later work, though. For me, the best King stuff came out of the 70s and 80s and it seemed he tried to start getting away from horror so much in the late 80s and the 90s doing stuff again like Eyes of the Dragon and Dolores Claiborne and the most recent of his books that I've read was Bag of Bones way back in 98. I did read like every other aspiring wannabe writer on writing in 2000 and then I kind of left Stephen King behind until 2006 when Stephen King finally took on the zombie genre with Cell. And I was very interested in seeing what Stephen King could do with zombies. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the first half of Cell and thought it totally fell apart at the end. And because of that, I hadn't really felt like jumping back into Stephen King. I skipped Duma Key, didn't read anything from just after Sunset. And when Under the Dome came out, I just wasn't all that intrigued by it. It was the story of a main town, as is most Stephen King works, that gets put under 
under a glass dome, for lack of a better term. And I have to admit, I was kind of skeptical. I didn't know exactly what kind of good story that would be, but I was very curious about the origins of the dome. Now, I do want to clear up a few things about this dome, and I don't really think these are spoilers per se, they're just information. The dome is not actually a dome. It is shaped to the exact specifications of the town of Chester's Mill in Maine, a small town of about 2,000 people. Living in a town of about 2,000 people myself, I could really relate to this community, and I found myself drawn into the characters and the story much quicker than I anticipated. I was a little hesitant because this book is 1,100 pages, and I kind of look at books the way one might look at a relationship. You see a thin book and you think, okay, that's a quick fling, and you see something like this and you're like, oh boy, this book wants a commitment. And I wasn't sure about how long it would take me to read a 1,100-page book. I figured it might actually take a couple months to get through this. But I decided to give it a try one day and went into it, and I found myself really engrossed. And let's face it, Stephen King is one of the most, if not the most, best-selling and most wealthy authors of all time. And it's not because the man doesn't know how to engross a reader. In this day and age, where I really think that... That reading has fallen by the wayside to such recreations as TV, movies, and video games and internet, he is one of the still guaranteed best-selling authors. And a lot of this comes from his ability to craft characters, and he has a lot of characters in this book, to the point that throughout the book, I had trouble keeping it straight. At the very beginning, he has a list of the main characters in the book and a small, mostly spoiler-free description, usually four or five words, of what that person's role is in Chester Mill. This list is 64 people long and doesn't even include all of the characters who are in this book and brought up repeatedly. Several times with some of the most minor of characters, I'd have to flip to this character page to see if they're listed there, and if they weren't, I'd have to try to flip through the book to figure out, okay, where did I know this character from again? But yet each of the characters is very realistically drawn. And something that I liked about this book is, for the most part, these characters are smart characters or characters that at least are acting in the way that they should. Even the stupid characters act realistically stupid. In so many books that I've read lately, and perhaps it's because I lean more towards mass market fiction, it seems like the book is somebody sets a plan in motion and the plan happens, and then somebody else sets a counter plan in motion and stops the first plan. In this case, it is a constant escalation of things going on. Smart people interacting with other smart people. The best way I can put it is Stephen King writing these characters reminded me of when I've heard of Bobby Fischer playing chess, because Bobby Fischer would play chess against himself, always knowing his own strategy against himself, playing each side equally hard. In this way, he was able to become a more masterful chess player and improve his game trying to find the holes that he didn't realize he had. In this way, Stephen King takes the characters along that same path. Going in, I was a little concerned because there's a couple different ways you can tell a disaster story, and being trapped under the dome is a disaster. You can go the way of Independence Day, where you're telling the story from the top down and you're seeing the officials charged with fixing the problem, or you can 
go the other way and tell of the people who are trapped in this disaster, such as the recent War of the Worlds remake. And Stephen King has done both of these in his time. Here you get kind of a mixture. In many ways, I'm reminded of the Stephen King work The Mist, because it is about the average people who become involved in something larger than themselves and have to deal with it and deal with those around them. I'm also very much reminded of Stephen King's work Needful Things, another very large book which deals with another small main community, King's fictional town of Castle Rock, which, by the way, borders Chester Hill in this book, and the way that all of the different community members interplay is very vital. And King wastes no time getting right into the action with Under the Dome. In the first lengthy chapter, the dome comes down, and we have approximately 100 pages of people just realizing the dome is down and dealing with the repercussions of having a large barrier on your town just in the initial stages. From there, the suspension action ratchet up inside this figurative pressure cooker of a town. How? Well, I'm not going to tell you that except to quote the old Time Life ad, read the book. By 150 pages into the novel, I was thinking that the pace was a little bit slow and I was hoping it would move on a little bit quicker because, again, there were 1,100 pages to read. But when things started going in this book, they started going really quickly. And I found myself doing what all readers had known themselves to do from time to time, which is stay up late to read, find extra time to read, take the book with you when you go places so that you might find a few moments to steal away and read. And this book that I thought might take me multiple months to read, I finished in a span of two and a half weeks, which is quite a fast pace for me to go through 1,100 pages. It all started around page 150, where I really got pulled into the novel, the suspense, and the characters, and what was going to happen. And King foreshadows much of what's going to happen exceptionally well, so you can see it coming a mile away, and yet when it does, you're still taken by surprise. By the same token, I found the book kind of started to slow back down after page 500. The focus of the book shifts from a couple of characters to some others, and I found myself really wanting the majority of the plot to get back on track. When it did, it did so in a big way, and I found myself really enthralled again with the book around page 750, and that coasted me right on through the end. Now, for those who hear Stephen King and immediately think of his classics of Carrie and Cujo and Christine and other movies and books that start with the letter C. That's not what this is. This isn't that type of horror. This isn't even the stand type of horror where it's a natural disaster, but it's also dealing with Randall Flagg, who may or may not be Satan. But that's not to say this book isn't gruesome. Even though I was reading King's work at the young age of 12, along with many of my peers, there are a lot of very adult themes here, so I wouldn't put it for the squeamish. But by no means would I call this a horror book, so much as I'd call it a very graphic science fiction adventure story. Now, if I had a complaint about this book, it would actually be about Stephen King's writing style itself. I remember also, back when I and all my classmates were very much into Stephen King, my English teacher in high school, my sophomore year, made us do a book report on any book we wanted to read, but there was a catch. It could not be Stephen King. I did actually try to make it a Richard Bachman book to see how much my English teacher knew, and she approved it until one of my fellow students ratted me out, the jerk. But English teachers seem to have a vendetta against Stephen King my whole life, and I could never figure out why. And that may be because I, as a reader, had primarily read Stephen 
Stephen King as far as adult fiction at that point. Up till I started reading Stephen King, I was reading stuff like The Three Investigators and other young adult fiction, as well as a lot of movie novelizations. And when I started writing myself, my sister, who is a literature professor, started reading my writing, and one of the things she said to me is, Arnie, you're writing far too much in parentheses. You don't speak in parenthetical notation, do you? And since then, when writing fiction, I've tried to avoid parentheses, and really, I don't see parentheses a lot in fiction. Here, Stephen King uses a lot of parenthetical notations, and it kind of bothered me, because in the parentheses were items that almost took me out of the book. It was the author speaking to me, King telling me something, just in parentheses as a short way of saying what he could have said through more natural prose. I haven't gone back to reread some of my old King favorites like Christine and The Stand to see if he's always been such a fan of parenthetical notation, and perhaps this kind of herky-jerky writing style is why my English professors hated him back in the 90s, but the writing style here was certainly informal and a little bit more of an irregular structure than I'm used to. Likewise, King has two chapters in the book which switch entirely into an author speaks to you mode, where he basically says we're reading a book and because we're reading a book, we can have a free discussion about what's going on and it's very strange. It's certainly taking the viewpoint of an omniscient narrator to a new level where now instead of an omniscient narrator, he's an omniscient storyteller, like telling a horror story by the fireside where he's able to interact with you and give you an aside or just catch you up on everything that's going on, which isn't necessarily bad given how long this novel is. A recap here and there isn't such a horrible idea. I guess this is in Stephen King's literature what a montage is in a movie, just reminding you where everybody is and what's going on. And then he also writes a couple of chapters from the point of view of a dog, and this is very much of a change from the rest of the book written from the standard omniscient narrator viewpoint, where he starts personifying a dog and giving us the thoughts of a dog again. All I could do was think back to the early chapters of Cujo, where he did that from the point of view of that Saint Bernard. And in reading those chapters, I couldn't help but wonder what made him decide to switch voice so drastically for those few chapters that perhaps to in total comprise 30 out of these 1,073 pages. But when it happens, it's a little bit of a disconcerting situation, although the chapters from the viewpoint of the dog were rather amusing as a dog lover myself. So overall, I actually really recommend Under the Dome. For reasons that I'll get into after the spoiler, I think that the ending of the novel doesn't necessarily live up to the action of the book, which is something, again, I associate with Stephen King. Many of his books, including The Stand, don't end as well as they begin. He's a great opener, but Stephen King lacks a little bit on the closing side from time to time, and this is one of those cases. But I still found myself addicted to this book, tearing through it, spending entire evenings with this book, and enjoying every minute of it. And so, if you're on the fence, I recommend you go out and pick up Stephen King's Under the Dome, and please support Books and Nachos by using the Amazon link on our homepage to get it. And now as a final thought, I do want to give a little bit of a spoiler, so if you want to remain completely spoiler-free, please stop now. Alright, you're still here. The spoiler is going to be about the origin of the dome. If you don't want to know the origin of the dome, again, stop now. Alright, you're still with me. 
I can't say that I like the portion of the book that deals with where the dome came from. It is revealed in the book that the dome has been put there by alien children. I don't think that knowing this completely would ruin your enjoyment of the book because what I found enjoyable of the book was all of the human interplay. But the simple fact is, rather than have an unknown force create the dome the way he was satisfied having an unknown force create the monsters in the mist. Here, King felt compelled to tell us exactly who put up the dome and why, and it is the equivalent of human children burning ants with a magnifying glass. That entire concept to me just didn't work because I didn't understand why aliens would even understand our geography to the point of creating a dome specifically matching the geography of a small town. If it had been an arbitrary diameter, I would have gone with it, but it's like they studied a map of Maine before they did this. And the entire resolution to the novel, which I won't give away, wasn't exactly satisfying, but because the origin is aliens and not aliens in an Independence Day were coming to invade you kind of way, but just aliens in a more like the end of Men in Black, where we're insignificant to them and they're messing with us again, the magnifying glass ant analogy, left me a little bit cold. I don't know if I would have preferred a different explanation, a more man-made explanation for the dome, but the fact that King describes the device that created the dome as an intergalactic Apple TV with its own logo and branded on the top, just, ugh, I didn't like that. That is the one point of this novel that I just didn't care for, and I'm not quite sure that any of the character resolutions tied up as well or better than the dome situation itself. But in this case, for me, getting there was was nine-tenths of the fun because the interplay among the main characters and all of the situations that the human situations that these characters encountered kept me entertained. So thank you for listening to my review of Under the Dome and we will be back in 2010 with more reviews of science fiction, fantasy, and horror novels. You can find it at booksandnachos.com and if you have suggestions of books you'd like to read please email us at show at booksandnachos.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is copyright 2009 Venganza Media Incorporated. Thank you.